And the Oscar goes and to... And the Oscar goes and the Oscar to... Goes to. My only object in being here is to try and get at the truth. What shall I go? What shall I do? He's looking at you, kid. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. I could have been a contender. Fasten yourself. I could have been somebody. They can only kill me with a golden bullet. What have I done? Call me Mr. Tibbs. I'm gonna make him an offer. Yeah. All real man. Love is, is love. too weak a word. Stay back. I, I, I love you. I love you. I love you. I did as you Don't laugh! If there's something wrong, it's wrong with the instructions. This ain't reality TV! Respect it and validate it. Remember that you told me? It's time, Robbie. Welcome to the next Best Picture Podcast. And the Oscar goes to Parasite. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 211 of the Next Best Picture Podcast. I am your host, Matt Negley, at time of recording, 11.08 a.m. on September 13th, 2020. Here to join me today, I have Nicole Ackman. Hi, everyone. Dan Baer. Good morning. Josh Parham. Hello, hello. And Tom O'Brien. Hey, everybody. All right, so Venice and Tiff have overlapped. New York Film Festival begins this week. We are officially in phase one of this year's award season, the film festivals. Phase two will be the precursors, the critics' prizes. Phase three, post-nominations. So... Lots to talk about this week, not just pertaining to what's been going on at Venice and at TIFF, but also to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences this week announced some new rules for diversity, representation, and inclusion, which will go into effect in 2024 for best picture qualifications. This is a pretty big deal. We're going to try and break this down for everyone so that everyone understands what those rules mean and hopefully dispel some... Well, let's just say some bad takes that I've seen lately about the decision by the Academy, if you will. We're also going to talk about the trailers for Netflix's uh, Rebecca and Dune. Ugh. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, everyone, lots to talk about, as I mentioned before. But we should probably start off with what everyone has been watching this week, because I have a feeling that there is a lot to talk about here. Why don't we first start off with Nicole Ackman. Nicole, what have you been watching uh, over the last week? Okay, I'm literally getting my list out because I've been watching so much that I don't know that I can remember it off the top of my head, which kind of says it all. (laughs) This is the time of year. (laughs) I started off the week by watching Mulan uh, on Disney+, Plus, which I was really pleasantly surprised by. I... I don't want to say that I expected it to be bad, but I think that there's been a trend with the more recent Disney live action remakes not really justifying their existence. And this one felt a little bit more like a return to like Cinderella, Maleficent, Jungle Book, um, something at the very least I felt, you know, was a different experience than just watching the animated film. So I was really happy with that. Um, I also watched The Devil All the Time. You can find my review up on the site. That is not an enjoyable watch, but I do think that there are good things in that movie. And, of course, I'm always going to be excited to see what Tom Holland is doing, uh, particularly outside of the MCU. I think he's about to enter into a really interesting stage in his career as he tries to become something other than just Peter Parker. What else did I see? I did not, you know... I feel like the the big uh, lesbian period drama movie that everyone's been talking about this week, obviously, is Ammonite. And I didn't get to see that. But what I did get to see is The World to Come, which is another lesbian romance period drama movie, which is really beautiful and has a really great performance by Vanessa Kirby, who 
obviously is also being talked about a lot right now. I think that obviously Pieces of a Woman is kind of her her uh, bigger film this year, but The World to Come is definitely something to seek out whenever it's available. I watched an old movie. I don't know if any of y'all have heard of this called Strangers in Good Company. Oh, I've heard of that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's this Canadian film from 1990, and it's uh, it's part of TCM's uh, Women in Film Month that they're doing. But it's basically like this docu-fiction thing where it's a fictional scenario that they've put these like seven elderly women in. But all the dialogue is improvised, and they're all telling stories about their own lives. And it is unlike anything I've ever seen. I was so fascinated by it, and particularly just the fact that like these are just real women being filmed, not actresses who've been given lines. So that was really interesting. And then most recently I watched Patterson, watched that yesterday as part of the MVP 2016 retrospective. Uh, I was, had really heard very little about that movie ever. I totally missed it in 2016 and I really loved it. It's a really comforting film. If anyone is looking for something to watch, if you're feeling maybe a little bit fragile in quarantine in the world that we're living in right now, I would actually definitely recommend Patterson. I want to just tell you right off the bat, Nicole, not all Jim Jarmusch films are like that. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's why I wasn't sure what I was getting into going into it. And then by the end of it, I was like, oh, oh, no, that was just really lovely. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Really cool. Awesome. Tom, let's kick it over to you. Well, next to Nicole's list, I haven't done too much, but I did see a very good political doc um, called uh, The Way I See It. Uh, which is uh, directed by Dawn Porter, who just a couple of months ago did what I think is the best political doc of the year so far on um, the life of John Lewis. And yeah, it's a really good, that's a really good film. Uh, This is good too, uh, in in a very different way. It's about a um, White House photographer named Pete Souza, who covered both the Reagan administrations and the Obama administrations. And, um, it's very much it, what, I, what I was intrigued about it was that it is a film about images. So you're watching a motion picture um, that is just about still life. And uh, in both cases, um, Sousa is no fan of the Reagan politics, but he does capture the affection that uh, Ronnie has for Nancy. And he he really captures the affection that Barack has for Michelle. And it's very much about uh, you know, the, the power that images have. Uh, it's going, it, was a, it was a tiff. Um, it's going to be released uh, in theaters, theaters that would show it on Friday. And then I think October 9th, it's going to be on MSNBC. It's really worth a look if you're interested in, 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 in political docs. Uh, but Dawn Porter has really come into her own, um, and um, I think she's a major political filmmaker. Nice. Awesome. I'm really, really excited to catch that one. Um, I should be able to watch that pretty soon, hopefully even later today. I don't know. We'll see. But really, really good to hear. Josh Parm, what about yourself? So this week I actually feel like I have seen a lot, although looking back on it, I think most of my time was spent watching old child's play movies for some reason. I was just <laughs> in the mood for that. Um, but in terms of some newer watches, uh, I did see I Am Greta, the new documentary that's about Greta Thunberg, and it's good. It's got a very like rousing, inspiring message at the center of it. Uh, I think that when it gets away from that and goes into more of her 
kind of personal mundane life. It's still interesting, but it's not quite as captivating as uh, all of the political activism that you see in the movie. But I still think it's really interesting and certainly is a movie that I think is very worthy to be seen. I thought it was a really good effort for sure. Yeah, I saw that one, too, and I I really enjoyed it. I thought it was incredibly inspiring and it was a documentary that made me really, really want to actually do something to help the environment, which is obviously what her mission is. And I I think that, you know, if, if, if it could do that for myself or, you know, for anyone, then the doc is setting out to do exactly what it you know, is uh, aspiring to do. And yeah, I definitely hope that people do check it out just so that they can, you know, see and understand that climate change is a really, really serious issue that uh, is not getting any better. And it needs more people's awareness in order to uh, in order to implement real change. And it brings that awareness for sure. That is the main reason why people should check it out. Um, Then I saw another movie called The Secrets We Keep. And this is it's a smaller film. It's a narrative feature where uh, it stars Numi Rapace, Joel Kinnaman, and Chris Messina. And so it's got a really good cast in it. And essentially the premise is it takes place in the 50s, and Numi Rapace plays this woman who survived the Holocaust, but she thinks that one of her uh, German attackers has resettled there and she basically kidnaps him and holds him hostage in her basement trying to get the real answers out of him and it's an interesting premise that unfortunately doesn't really go anywhere i didn't really feel like the filmmakers really explored the kind of moral quandary that these characters are in and it just felt kind of basic and shallow i think the uh the performances do a lot to try to elevate the material but Otherwise, it was a little underwhelming, to be honest. I kind of was hoping for more with that cast. And like I said, I think they do their best, but the material just really wasn't working with them, unfortunately. Mm. And uh, after that, I did see a movie for the very first time. It's an older film, and it's actually a movie uh, that you have to go all the way back to 1930. And it's this movie called The Unholy Three. And really the only reason why I decided to watch it was because it has the notoriety of being the only sound film that Lon Chaney ever made. Oh. Yeah, I was sort of interested to see it just out of that curiosity. Um, Like a lot of early talkies, it's not very good. So uh, there's not really a big reason to go see it. But if you are interested in Lon Chaney, if you are a fan of his and want to see his the only movie that he made in sound that is definitely it so (laughs) there it is all right so dan bear and i are going to have a lot of overlap here so what i'm going to do is i'm going to (laughs) i'm going to first just mention the movies that i saw that dan did not see and i'll have dan then take it away from there so um i did see i am greta as uh, we mentioned before i saw um this movie called apples uh, which comes from uh, Christos Niku, who is uh, like a protege to Yorgos Lanthimos. It's like a very uh, strange, dry, somber, like look at memory and identity. Uh, and it takes like place in a world where um, a pandemic is inflicting people with amnesia. So in a way, it kind of felt a little timely in the sense that, you know, we're going through our own pandemic right now. Um, and it was just a very interesting premise. But it, I also found it to be a bit... Uh, cold and distant and um, maybe not as involving as I wanted it to be, especially compared to Lanphimos's work. But uh, you could definitely see like the Greek, you know, style, like if you will, like kind of rub off here. It was it was it was interesting. 
Uh, then I saw this really, really good independent movie called Topside, uh, which I really, really loved. It like had elements of the Florida Project and Room. It was about a mother and a daughter basically living in the subway, uh, an abandoned subway underground. And they have like built a life for themselves like in this abandoned subway. And uh, the mother is very, very troubled. And, you know, she's doing everything that she can to protect her daughter. Um, and obviously, at some point in the movie, they are forced to go topside. And it's a very, very simple movie. It's not really uh, what I would consider to be like expansive, but it was very emotional and uh, it, it hit all the right beats that it needed to. I highly recommend it. Uh, then I also, uh, like Nicole said, saw The World to Come, which I enjoyed. Um, I do think that there is a reoccurring theme lately with period uh, lesbian dramas where they are starting to feel a bit repetitive and that... Uh, I don't know, like, unless if they're using, like, a different narrative uh, framing device or a different shooting style or something like that, like, this actual stories feel very similar. Like, they're hitting very similar beats for me. And a movie like, say, Summerland, which uh, we reviewed uh, earlier this year on the Next Best Picture podcast, like, that was a movie, for example, that I thought, like, did something different. And that was that made that movie, like, a little bit more exciting. But I also think, like... Anything that's coming out this year, like in the wake of Portrait of a Lady uh, on Fire, is like just suffering from inevitable comparisons. Uh, but that doesn't mean this isn't bad. Like it, It's good. It's really good. I saw Mainstream, which, you know, was another Venice movie uh, that features this bonkers, insane performance from Andrew Garfield that reminded me so much of like Jake Gyllenhaal in Okja in a lot of ways. Uh, I... I, I think the movie is a little confused, like in its messaging a, a bit, but it's a really, really strong film from Gia Coppola. She's definitely got a really keen visual eye. It's great seeing Maya Hawke on screen, uh, continuing to get more roles. I think she is definitely an up and coming talent uh, that I'm very, very uh, curious to see more from. But I would recommend checking this out just to see Garfield's performance because it's really, really out there. After that... I think we are, yep, I think we're up to, uh, I think we're up to Bear now. So, Den Bear, uh, take it away on your TIFF journey. Uh, yeah, so it, it was a bit of a moment uh, when Nicole said that she began the week by watching Mulan because I was like, oh my god, that was this week? Um, <laughs> 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 which just goes to show how many, how long this week has been um, since I've been, quote unquote, at the Toronto International Film Festival. Um, it, as obviously, it has been going on digitally, so I have obviously been watching most of these things at home from the from the uh, relative comfort of my apartment. Uh, it's been uh, kind of strange. Um, having been at TIFF for the first time last year and doing it now at home, it's, it's interesting how it's different and how it's absolutely not at all. Um, I am able to watch, I'm able to fit in more movies a day if when I really, uh, hunker down than I was when I was at TIFF on site last year. I think the first day I 
clocked six movies and I never got to that many, but also like the movies are generally shorter this year <laughs> than they were at TIFF last year. Oh, don't worry. Don't worry. Frederick Wiseman city hall I is coming know. for you, sir. I know. And like, I'm weirdly <laughs> very excited about city hall, <laughs> but like 237 minutes. Oh man. But yeah, so I've watched a lot first day of the festival, I was most excited, and I think most people were, for Regina King's directorial debut, One Night in Miami, which is, uh, <laughs> it's pretty fantastic. I really, really enjoyed it. It's about one, well, one night in Miami, where um, Malcolm X, uh, Muhammad Ali, who was then still Cassius Clay, Sam Cooke, and... Uh, Jim Brown, the football star, uh, were together after uh, Cassius Clay at that point won his first uh, world heavyweight champion boxing title. And apparently this like is a meeting that actually happened, but no one really knows what was said or or what happened in that meeting. And the um, I want to be in the room where it happens, the room where it happens, the room where it happens. Very much so. <laughs> Um, and uh, the it, this was originally a play by a playwright named Ken Powers. I have not had the pleasure of seeing the play or even reading the play, but I will say that as a film, it's it's really incredible, and you can kind of tell that it was based on a play because the dialogue is so dynamic and well-written. There are parts where it feels a bit stagey. I'd say about 85% of it takes place in the one hotel room, but again, like the dialogue is so great and uh, Regina King finds enough interesting ways to shoot it that I was never bored. And this is a conversation between these four men about, you know, what it means to be young, gifted and black at particularly at that moment in 1964. But it's these are conversations that we're still having today about what these people can do with their position in society and what they can't, um, you know, what it means to be a good member of this community um, and, you know, what what it means to be a part of a revolution and what it means, you know, how to protest, how to use your voice. And I just kept thinking about you know, the Black Lives Matter protests that are happening today and everything that we as a society are going through and, you know, how the more things change, the more they stay the same. And the it's really, really well done. Um, all four of the central performances are great, but the standout for me was definitely uh, Kingsley Benadir, who plays Malcolm X. It's a fantastic performance. He gets a few big... Malcolm X speechifying moments that are just, he knocks it out of the park. Um, but yeah, fantastic ensemble and a really enjoyable film. I really, really loved it. Cosign, by the way, that was one of the ones that I saw. <laughs> <laughs> the other standout from the first day was a little Canadian film called Shiva Baby, which is hilarious. <laughs> like, I, it's cringe comedy at its finest. I don't, as far as I know, it doesn't have a distributor yet, but if it, I really hope it gets one because I was dying laughing the whole time. I really recommend it. Be on the lookout if it happens. The second day, 
Uh, the big one was Nomadland, uh, Chloe Zhao's follow-up to The Writer, starring Frances McDormand, which everyone has been sort of on pins and needles anticipating. And yeah, it's good. It is good. <laughs> I want to I wanna just say this because I'm already having to have conversations with a lot of people about this. Um, I need to provide some caution to people because it won the Golden Lion at Venice for Best Film. It's directed by Chloe Zhao, who a lot of people want to see get Oscar recognition in the Best Director category. Uh, they, you know, her, her previous film, The Writer, was something that was really beloved by a lot of people. And I do think that Nomadland is definitely an Oscar player, but I do not think it is a Best Picture winner. Completely agree. And the main reason for that is I think it's a critics film like Roma was. But I think just like Roma, I think it's going to suffer when uh, more general audiences and Academy members watch it and they kind of slap it with the label of, well, not much really happens. Yeah, it is. It is at its heart a road movie. Um, it is. It follows Frances McDormand's character as she, you know, travels up and down the American West throughout the course of a year, um, working as basically a modern day migrant worker. And she's great. The cinematography is stunning. The cinematography has no right to be this good for a film this small. It's really, really good. It's, it's really. <laughs> I mean, incredible. if you saw the writer, I could believe it. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but this is very much a sort of, I'm going to say, American slow cinema piece like the writer was. And look, that that has a limited appeal. And Frances McDormand, you know, really sells it. It is her most naturalistic piece of acting, I think, that she's ever given. But again, it's very quiet. It's a very quiet film. Like I was waiting for like some big dramatic yeah. moment to kind of happen and it never does. And that's why like from an interior point of view and for critics who love that kind of work, I think, you know, they're going to eat this up. And, you know, I really do think it's going to be a big precursor juggernaut with the critics groups. Mm -hmm. But I, I do not like I said, I do not see how this translates to like best picture winner. But, you know, nominations are, you know, definitely in the cards for this movie. Um, I think I think like, you know, a worst possible case scenario is that it ends up like the farewell. But I mean, I would I, that would be like a travesty uh, because it, it does have a lot of muscle behind it. It's not so much what I would consider to be a small, small indie movie on, on the level of like, you know, the farewell, you know, because it has McDormand attached to it. So it is going to get a lot of eyeballs. And uh, Chloe Zhao is definitely a name, especially with the Turtles coming up, you know, that a lot of people are going to want to check out. So it it also has 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 a great score. Uh, so cinematography and score are both on the table too. But the score, it the score, the credit for the score is featuring the music of Ludovico Einaudi. True. Not original score by. So I this may be one of those scores that gets disqualified. Um, I, I don't know if it's pre-existing music or not, but that credit makes me gives me pause and makes me wonder. But it's very effective. The score is very effective, um, and and also effective. 
the ensemble cast, these are all real people, not actors. Outside of Frances McDormand and David Strathairn, who, sorry, David Strathairn fans, is barely in it. All of that ensemble cast are, like, real people, not actors. And they're great. Um, it gave me, it reminded me of Up in the Air, how they used real people who had gotten uh, fired from their jobs and, like, sort of did these inserts of interviews with them. Except they were really fully integrated into the story. Um, but, yeah, it's really good. But it lacks that, like, extra oomph, I think, to give it a more widespread acclaim. And more, like, you know, people in its corner. I can already see it, like, boyhood. People will watch it and they'll just be like, oh, that's it? Yeah. I, I can already see that happening with general audiences. But I, I can tell you guys this. I think you guys are all going to love it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I am looking forward to this one. Like, everything that you have just said is like, check that box, check that box. I'm gonna get Facebook <laughs> yep. has so much that I look for in movies. So I am very excited to see it. Yeah. And I got to just emphasize one more time, the cinematography in this. I, I, like, oh, God. I'm, I'm talking, like, Terrence Malick magic hour days of heaven level greatness like wow. it, it looks unreal in some of these like shots and I, I even i even told dan i'm like if anything i think the cinematography is more of a lock than francis mcdormand to be honest with you yeah <laughs> totally agree totally agree like it looked like there were some moments on like even on my you know crappy tv relatively speaking compared to like you know a movie screen um i want i was like you know <laughs> my jaw was on the floor being like what the <laughs> fuck <laughs> it's it looks fantastic uh, and that will be enough to get it you know it, is david strathairn's part too small to be considered yes yeah okay yeah way too small i mean and i'm not talking like sam elliott a star is born small he doesn't have a scene like Sam Elliott did, like in the car and a star is born, you know, it's like, Got it. It, 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 and that's, and that's the big problem is that Strafe, Strafe doesn't have, in my opinion, the scene. That's, that's the big drawback. I think screen time wise, isn't an issue, but I think he was lacking of uh, a moment that's going to make him stand out amongst other yeah. potential heavy hitters that we haven't seen yet. Okay. Yeah. If, there is one person in the supporting cast who has a scene and it's a great one, but I don't think that that's going to happen either. The other big one on the second day of the fest was the uh, Ammonite, the period lesbian romance with Kate Winslet and Saoirse Ronan directed by Francis Lee, who did God's own country. And like Nomadland, it's good. Way too slow, restrained, reserved to get the sort of Oscar traction that I think a lot of people were thinking. That said, I thought both Kate Winslet and Saoirse Ronan were fantastic. Um, Kate Winslet, in particular, I think, has never given a performance quite like this. It is so interior and muted but there comes a point when she does like open up and it's really beautifully done i think it's one of her best performances but again it's just it's operating at like on a volume level from one to ten the whole movie is kind of like at a a four or five maybe it's very reserved which makes sense for these characters and the period that it takes place in. But in forms of like being a satisfying viewing experience, 
it, it really holds it back. That said, there are some people who are going to love it. I can tell already. It really does suffer to comparison to Portrait of a Lady on Fire. But I, I still liked it, but I I wasn't able to love it the way that I wanted to. I will say that I think Saoirse Ronan, as of now, is the supporting actress frontrunner. But she can easily yeah. be knocked out. Uh, by a film that has a Best Picture nomination, which this movie will not get, in mm-hmm. my opinion. Um, so, like, as of today, Sersha's performance is definitely in the category of, like, good enough to win. And if the narrative is very strong and the campaign is super strong and she doesn't have that Best Picture nomination, maybe, you know? But I, 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 I don't think that her or Kate are winning for this. I, I, w- I would agree with that. Um, the I think that Sersha's role is kind of baity. Um, the character is in the aftermath of having lost a child, so, and there's lots of crying, sort of melancholia, hysteria scenes that are big emotional moments. She gets the bigger emotional moments of the film, and she's wonderful. And it like this is sort of the moment where she goes from you know being quote unquote a girl to a woman in many ways. She's great in it, but again, like it's the movie is just too quiet to get much traction. Um, and then uh, yesterday, the uh, <laughs> less bit higher profile movies than those. I really liked the new Francois Ozon film, Summer of '85. But as with most Ozon, it's sort of good, not great. It's messy, uh, too much. But it's not top tier Ozan, but it's good. Wolf Walkers from Cartoon Saloon, who did Secret of Kells and Song of the Sea, is gorgeously animated. Put that in your predictions right now for animated feature. Yeah, yeah <laughs> like big time. It's it's beautifully animated. The score is great. It even has a couple songs that, if it were from Disney, would be getting a nomination. But it's it's not. Um, and like the emotional core of the relationships of this movie are just as strong as anything from Pixar, which is sort of like the become the gold standard for animated movies that make you cry. Um, I shed a few tears by the end of it and really, really strong stuff. Um, but the big one from yesterday was Pieces of a Woman, uh, which is from... I'm going to mess up this name, Cornell Mandruxo, who directed White God a few years back and stars Vanessa Kirby, who just won the Volpe Cup at Venice for Best Actress. And she is, <laughs> God, she's fantastic. And the film just got picked up by Netflix as well. <laughs> Which, like, I cannot wait for people to watch the 30-minute long one take live birth scene at the top of this movie over and over. It just screams Netflix movie. I, I can't, I can't even tell you. <laughs> it's actually the best scene in the movie. It, it, it is. And, and the film never kind of reaches that like level again. And it will definitely be, I think one of the most memorable scenes of the year uh, because of the acting, because mm-hmm. of, you know, the unbroken take uh, it's, it's really, really like anxiety fueled, like riveting yeah. stuff. Um, but the movie, I, I, it's very melodramatic. 
Like, yeah. Extremely. <laughs> like that scene is sort of like this heightened realism. And after that, um, it, it's about, you know, a couple who lose a baby right after having given birth. And right after that scene, it, the melodrama just creeps in and sort of increases until the end where it becomes a courtroom drama for the entire last act. It's not great. But it is one of those movies where, like, the movie's fine, but Vanessa Kirby is so good that she is, as far as I'm concerned, to, to just shot up the the rankings for Best Actress Frontrunner at the Oscars. And there's a, a surprise uh, Oscar contender that emerged from this movie, too. Yeah, Ellen Burstyn has a, a like unbelievable monologue in the middle of this movie that again is sort of done in one take like close up on her face and she is riveting uh you know sort of you know takes the reins of this movie like only a legendary actor can and just holds you in this vice grip for uh couple of minutes think of like the scene in american gangster where ruby d had Mm -hmm. just a few short minutes and she somehow got like that the nomination from that impactful scene i would equate this to that yeah it's stellar it's just stellar and i when when that monologue was finished i was like oh well she's getting a supporting actress nomination <laughs> because people are going to watch this for vanessa kirby and if you're able to make it through that gauntlet of the first 30 minutes of the film uh you'll stick with it and you'll see this scene and you will write in her name on your on your nominations list i have no doubt about it she's that'd great that'd be great yeah, yeah, it's really, really worthy work. It's the best work she's done since since Requiem for a Dream, honestly. Um, really strong stuff. Uh, those have been the, the big ones that I've seen. I, I want to give a quick shout out to a documentary called No Ordinary Man, which is about a jazz musician named Billy Tipton, who it was discovered upon his death was actually a woman who is living her life as a man. It is about the trans experience and done really, really well. It doesn't have a distributor yet. I hope it gets picked up because it's the best documentary I've seen in a long, long time. Um, And then yesterday I saw a small Canadian film called Beans, which is a coming-of-age story that takes place in the late 80s or early 90s in Canada during a moment of civil unrest – uh, with the First Nations there, and is provides a sort of child eye view to these uh, protests and civil unrest moments, and it felt very, very timely. And the lead performance is it's one of the best child performances of the year, and I really enjoyed it. It was very timely and got me emotional, and really well done. Uh, so shout out to those two smaller movies. And if you're a distributor somehow listening to this, pick them up. Uh, and I want to just uh, cap it off by saying that uh, last night was the world premiere of I Care A Lot, uh, starring Rosamund Pike, I, I uh, uh, Gonzalez, Diane Weist, Chris Messina, Peter Dinklage. Uh, this was a movie that, you know, I didn't really know what to expect going in, to be honest with you, even reading like the plot synopsis uh, for it. I was like, OK, like. 
I don't know what kind of tone this is going to take, but let's just give it a whirl and see what happens. There's big, some big names attached. This is a very unique crime movie. <laughs> to say the least. It, it has... I don't want to say Rosamund Pike's best work since Gone Girl because A Private War still exists, but it taps into like the same energy as the performance that she gave in Gone Girl where she is just so effortlessly cool and has this like swagger and command of the screen that just is so riveting to watch. She plays this tough as nails, uh, extremely determined and ambitious legal guardian who is exploiting the law to essentially seize like elderly people's assets and get them committed into care facilities. It's a fascinating character and she mm. completely owns that role. And the movie has like a lot of surprises and twists and it's just a lot of fun and it's very entertaining. I really, really highly recommend that people check that one out uh, when it becomes available. It, it was in terms of, like, mainstream, mid-budget, like, adult, like, you know, kind of movie uh, that usually plays at TIFF, think of, like, something like a, like a Knives Out, maybe, or something like that. Like, this was, like, in that space, and I, I just had so much fun with it. Yeah, it is a movie that knows the exact amount of camp that it can handle without flying completely off the rails, and super entertaining super entertaining all right so i mean like that that pretty much is a recap of uh the festival circuit for this week uh we still have uh, good joe bell with mark Wahlberg to come concrete cowboy with idris elba some documentaries uh so we'll be back obviously next week to discuss some of that along with uh this week starts new york film festival so steve mcqueen's small acts trilogy will be uh debuting this week and i'll have some thoughts on that uh come next week as well so so, yeah, a lot to look forward to, uh, definitely. I think this is a good segue, though, uh, maybe into our poll for this week. Uh, we're asking everyone, you know, and we ask this question every couple of months, of course. But considering we're like right in the middle of film festivals, I think the last time I asked this question was back in May. Wanted to get a temperature gauge on where people uh, sit at the moment. What do you guys think is going to be the next Best Picture Oscar winner as of today? Nicole. As of today, I'm still sitting with Trial of the Chicago 7 until I see anything that uh, suggests otherwise. Okay. All right. Josh Parham. I am still trying to take a bit of a risk, and I am saying that it is going to be Soul. Tom O'Brien? Um, I, I think that Mank has the look of a Best Picture winner. Um, Chicago 7 has the heft of a Best Picture winner. But I'm with Josh. I'm really, really rooting for Soul. Dan Bear? Until proven otherwise, I'm still saying Mank is the early front runner, which is something of a bad place to be in before everyone sees it. But it nothing else. I can think of downsides for just about every other possible contender. And until proven otherwise, I'm sticking with Mank. And I'm going with a split for picture and director. I think Mank is going to take director and Trial of the Chicago 7 will take picture. So that's our poll this week. Uh, feel free to vote on that. Let us know what you all think. Last week, we asked everyone uh, which 2020 film festival movie were they most looking forward to. Uh, so this was obviously before like the festivals all kicked in, but I'm just curious to see what everyone was looking forward to. So let's take a look here. Hi, everyone. This is Tim Costa. I'm Hermano De Silva. And this is Walter Vinci. And together we are the First Time Watchers Podcast. Each week we choose a movie to review that none of us has seen. Watch it together. And then discuss. These movies could be new. 
or old or on our list of shame. You can find us on iTunes by searching for the First Time Watchers podcast. As well as on Stitcher. And we love interacting with our listeners. So if you have any suggestions, send us a tweet, an email, or post to our Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. That's right. I mean, it's all about interaction. And talk about what we love, movies. And you don't have to worry about us going on and on about this and that and the other. And oh, no, look, no, no, let's no. talk stop, about stop, this stop, minutia shut up, here. Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. And I wonder shut who up. the cat that can God damn it, shut up. I think that's enough. Oh, my God. Go by the so at number 10, uh, we have The World to Come, which, yeah, no, I, I definitely think it's uh, worth checking out for sure. Agreed. Number nine, David Byrne's American Utopia, mm. which I did check out, and it wasn't for me. I'm not really a Talking Heads fan, but if you are a Talking Heads fan or a David Byrne fan in general, um, I think that you are going to absolutely love this. And I also think it's more technically impressive in how it is shot than even Hamilton was. Spike Lee, I thought shot the hell out of this thing wow uh number eight another round starring mads mickelson anyone who's a fan of the hunt i'm sure voted for that one because uh it's a reteaming of uh that director and him so mm-hmm. definitely one to look out for uh number seven french exit with michelle pfeiffer come on michelle get that best actress nomination <laughs> <laughs> Number six is Pieces of a Woman. Uh, definitely a higher profile this week after being picked up by Netflix and Vanessa Kirby's Best Actress win at Venice for sure. I can definitely understand where the hype lies with that one right now. Uh, number five, Regina King's One Night in Miami. It is very good. Highly recommended. And I also want to echo something that Dan said earlier. Uh, Kingsley Benadir is definitely, for me at least, like in... He should be, I think, in the uh, Oscar conversation uh, in that movie. Mm-hmm. Lead supporting all of that. Let's let's save that conversation for another time <laughs> right now. Yeah. But, you know, I think that it's tough when everyone in that movie is kind of equal in their screen time. So we'll come back to that later. <laughs> That's the most Oscar friendly role, if not the showiest necessarily. Yeah. Number four, The Father with Anthony Hopkins, which... I love that it plays this high, even though it's already premiered at Sundance earlier this year. And believe me, when I tell you all, I think Anthony Hopkins' performance in this, the more I think about it, the more I think it's like one of the best performances like I've ever seen an actor give. God, I can't wait. <laughs> uh, number three, surprise it placed this high, On the Rocks from Sofia Coppola. Mm. People are really looking forward to On the Rocks. I mean, she hasn't done anything in a while. Yeah, people like her a lot. Number two, I'd be curious to know if this uh, dropped uh, at this point, but it's Ammonite. And number one is Nomadland, which, like I said before, deservedly has a lot of hype behind it at the moment. I do want to just caution some people about what they might just be getting into with it is all. But it is very good. Not going to take that away from it. That was the poll results for uh, last week. Now... Let's talk about our first trailer here. We got a trailer for Dune this week. Denny Villeneuve's adaptation of the epic science fiction novel starring Timothy Chalamet and a very, very robust cast. Uh, We've talked about them all before here on the podcast, but we finally got our first look at the movie. Let's take a look at the trailer and give some thoughts. There's something happening to me. There's something awakening in my mind. I can't control it. What did you see? There's a crusade coming. Do you often dream things that happen just as you dream them? Yes. 
The test is simple. Remove your hand from the box, and you die. What's in the box? Pain. You inherit too much power. You have proven you can rule yourself. Now you must learn to rule others. Something none of your ancestors learned. My father rules an entire planet. He's losing it. He's getting a richer one. He'll lose that one too. Arrakis is a death trap. Kill him. This is an extermination. They're picking my family off one by one. Let's fight like demons. An animal caught in a trap will gnaw off its own leg to escape. What will you do? I know you. One day, the legend will be born. All of civilization depends on it. The future, I can see it. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. My Lord Duke. Where the fear is gone, only I will remain. Go, go, go! It looks impressive, for sure, but... I still am a bit skeptical because I've yet to see a Villeneuve movie to really wow me in the story department. And knowing what I know of Dune source material, I am I don't know about that one. <laughs> I don't know. The, the the one Villeneuve movie that really knocked me out was Prisoners. And this is nothing like it. And for God's sakes, I have two words. It's Dune, people. Yeah. <laughs> I thought the Q&A that they did uh, prior to the trailer uh, debuting, hosted by Stephen Colbert, like helped a lot in terms of giving a lot of context, maybe. Mm. Uh, so yeah. if anyone saw that before the trailer debuted, I think it, you know, certainly, you know, was helpful. But I definitely agree that watching the trailer for this, the story can feel ever so slightly still convoluted, even though I kind of now have a more general gist of what is going on. I've never read the source material. I haven't even seen a David Lynch original, uh, to be honest with you all. So I don't really know that much about this. But what I do know, and based on this trailer, I know that we're going to get a lot of world building. I know that we're going to get a huge scale. And movies that tend to do that are usually right up my alley. So I still think deep down that this has the potential if if successful i want to just preface by saying if successful i do think it has the potential to surpass people's expectations and maybe be an awards player the same way that 
Fellowship of the Ring was uh, back in 2001, where it too was slapped with, oh, this adaptation can't possibly work. There's no way they're going to be able to pull this off. And, you know, it was able to do it. So if Dune is able to, you know, pull it off, I think that it could contend in above the line. But just based on this trailer alone, costumes, cinematography, sound, visual effects, I mean, you check it off. It's got those checked off, I think, just based on the aesthetic alone. Um, yeah, it looks like I saw this and was like, well, I really need to see that IMAX now, <laughs> <laughs> even though I have tried to read Dune several times over the years and just could not get into it any time someone, that I've tried. <laughs> yeah, as someone who is currently reading Dune, um, I don't have like great hopes for this movie, <laughs> just because it is really difficult source material. But I do think it's going to be a technically really well done film probably like all of that looks great in the trailer and i mean with this kind of cast like i think the movie is going to do well uh just because it has enough people in it that people will flock to this movie even if it gets bad reviews i i don't think uh they need to be worried about it at all (laughs) i think they need to be a little worried about it i mean (laughs) Tenant right now hasn't even cracked 200 million worldwide, and so oh, I am I'm worried. Assuming I'm assuming they're going to hold Dune until theaters are open uh, more widely. That's been my assumption about it. Well, it's set for December right now, and you know they haven't. Nece- they've not moved that date. Warner Brothers the same way that they moved 1984 uh, Wonder Woman this week. Yeah, I, I just the thing that I keep thinking about with Dune though is. If they couldn't turn Blade Runner into a really big hit, which is based on material that more people have familiarity with, I just struggle to see how you can translate Dune into something that general audiences really want to flock to, even with this impressive cast. Because science fiction just normally, even in the best of times, can struggle with connecting with audiences. And Dune is just such, like, dense work i i just do not know how it will translate i want to see it it looks great like the visuals are stunning from the trailer but i i don't know about the story i'm still worried about that i think it helps that the book is being split into two movies and that this movie is meant to be the first half of the book so i'm hoping that it allows for some breathing room to you know, give Danny Villeneuve an opportunity to uh, kind of bring down that density a little bit and make it a bit more accessible. Yeah, but you know, the the flip side with that, though, is if people don't know that and they go in thinking this is going to be one movie, they get to the end and there's not an ending, I can imagine a lot of pissed off people. Sure, I could I could see that too. I don't know. We'll see. You know, right now, I know that there is development for a second film, but I think it's all contingent on how well this one does. So we we might not ever see the second Dune movie if this doesn't do well. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, I, I, I definitely am excited for it just in terms of like i said before the visuals the scale i want to i want to hear Hans zimmer's score so badly i was hoping we would get a preview of that in this instead we got that pink floyd uh cover in this trailer which i don't i didn't like that music choice even if it was kind of a nod to um the documentary uh what am i thinking of um jodorowsky's dune Dune. Dune. yeah Mm -hmm. so yeah I'm excited, you know, but I I definitely share the reservations with y'all. I'm a little optimistic at the moment, but 
that is uh, something that I think can definitely change in a heartbeat. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We will see. Was A Quiet Place inspired by signs it comes at night in War for the Planet of the Apes? Was Ready Player One influenced by Avatar, Wreck-It Ralph, and The Last Starfighter? Is the Hurricane Heist more influenced by Sharknado or Geostorm? These are the kinds of questions my guest co-hosts and I discuss on my podcast, Piecing It Together. Every week we look at a new movie and try to figure out what other movies inspired it. Whether it's the story, the character development, tone, or even use of music. Every movie was influenced by something that came before and we want to figure out what. Check out Piecing It Together on your favorite podcast app or check us out on piecingpod.com. You can also follow us on social media at piecingpod. Piecing It Together is a part of the All Points West Podcast Network. Let's move over now to what the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences did this week. Well, they did something. (laughs) That's for sure. (laughs) Basically now, in order to qualify for Best Picture, a film needs to meet certain standards of inclusion, either in front of the camera, within the production crew, or within the studios themselves. This is going to be uh, fully implemented in 2024, giving uh, studios, production companies, a long time to hopefully uh, work this out. This is a pretty substantially big deal uh this doesn't impact any of the other categories it only impacts best picture but you know it's interesting because a lot of people i saw were very very angry at this and talking about like how oh well the irishman wouldn't be nominated or 1917 wouldn't have been nominated yeah like the list was endless about movies that people were saying like just wouldn't be nominated and this whole conversation of merit over you know inclusivity uh, and like tokenism and so on and so forth. And if you actually take a moment to read the rules, like I, I was struggling to find a contender that actually would fail to meet these requirements within the last 10 years. Going going beyond that is a different story, but that's a different time. And movies, I don't think, are being made the way that they were being made in 1978, for example. So I don't think that studios have a lot to necessarily worry about. And if they weren't already doing this, this is the little push that people need to just be maybe a little bit more self-aware. You can still, with these rules, tell a movie that is about all white dudes if you wanted to. You know, your just behind-the-scenes crew needs to be diversified, and that's not a bad thing. So I don't know what people are getting crazy about with this. And the quotas for this, too, is like 30 percent. Like it's such a relatively low threshold that these movies would need to qualify for. And it's also in so many different like categories. There's like basically four different sections that movies need to go for and you only need to do two out of the four to qualify for best picture now when you say 30 percent, what is that pertaining to josh um whether it is like your overall crew positions or members of the ensemble or if it's in the publicity marketing department like whatever section that the academy has determined needs to be represented with diversity the positions filled within those sections needs to be 30 percent uh, overall in terms of who is working there. And their definition of diversity is actually like pretty broad. Um, you know, they've included like race, gender, even people with disabilities, which I thought was interesting. Like I, it really feels like the kind of thing where if your movie isn't hitting that, it, it, it shouldn't be in contention for best picture. It almost feels like it's kind of a nothing statement. Yep, and I think that yeah. really, if we can diversify the crews, 
these folks need this. And we have so many talented people of color um, who have not been able to get uh, jobs uh, doing this. I'm really happy this is happening. Yeah. I mean, so just breaking this down, you need to meet two of the four. The four are on-screen representation, themes, and narrative. Okay. The second one is creative leadership and the project team. Number three is industry access and opportunities. And then the last one is audience development. So you need to hit two of those four in order to qualify for best picture. Yeah, and even within those four, there are subcategories within them. So, like, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of maneuvering to do. And I do think that, on the one hand, it's great that these rules are now in place so that studios can start thinking more about these positions. But at the same time, they're, like, so easy to qualify for, especially if you are a big studio, that you really need to go out of your way to not qualify for best picture under these circumstances. And yeah. that is why like the outrage and like a lot of the bad takes that I saw in response to this were completely, in my opinion, unfounded. I think they all just read the headlines and didn't actually read the rules and guidelines and put two and two together that most of the movies are all meeting this standard anyway. This is not going to have an impact in regards to stories that are being told. Don't you guys worry. We're still going to get World War II movies starring all men. <laughs> I promise you. <laughs> like, you know, I, I think that people were just freaking out over nothing because at the end of the day, too, think about this. If you have your World War II all white men you know, movie that's uh, on screen. Okay, that doesn't meet the first requirement necessarily for on-screen representation, but the leadership and project team, it could be a female director. It could be a department head for uh, one of one of the crews that is also, um, you know, um, someone of a, of a different ethnic group than, uh, than, than white. Uh, you know, it's like there are so many ways that this can go. And at the end of the day, grading those opportunities to people behind the scenes in the publicity departments and also in the crew, like, how is that a bad thing? I also just even, you know, I did see a bunch of takes about like, oh, well, what about what about war movies? What about this? And I'm like, let me teach you something fun about how, yeah, it was all men at war, but they didn't have to all be white straight men. Like, <laughs> it just does seem like such a reach to have any sort of problem with it. And I have seen some people saying that, like, it feels like a nothing statement. It feels like an empty gesture. And that I do think is kind of a valid criticism of it, that, like, it's almost too easy. It's like it's not really achieving anything. So that I kind of get. I don't understand how anyone could have a problem with it in terms of like, you know, saying that we don't need some sort of diversity initiative in place. You know what I do? You know what I do think in, that, in regards to that, Nicole, though, because I, I understand that on the surface it might seem like inconsequential and like, you know, people are probably organically already meeting these standards. But I think that, like I said, the, the awareness aspect. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I just think. If they had said to be eligible for the Academy Awards at all, I think people probably would have maybe not had as much of an issue, but it's only affecting the best picture. Yeah, but also hundreds of movies get uh, submit submitted for best picture uh, to qualify every year. Like, I think it's like, what's the number usually, Dan? Uh, it's like over 300? No, more than that. Yeah, it's over that. It's usually a couple of hundred movies. It's not yeah, just... Yeah. And, and films will generally submit for best picture 
like without even submitting for any of the others. Like it, it's it, it's very weird. I I it's interesting to me that there were so many people who were like, why would you even do this? Blah blah blah. Because most of the takes that I have seen from people have been the of the this doesn't go far enough. Yeah. Variety and to a point. I agree with that. It feels like the Academy is sort of codifying most of what the major studios, at least, are doing anyway. Like, these standards are ridiculously easy to meet. I don't even think there has been a Best Picture nominee from the past 10 years that would have not met these requirements. And Yeah. And, and I and I get that, and I get people wanting to do more, but I do think that codifying it in this way, it, it's giving a set of standards that are at least a starting point yeah. for films to meet. Yeah. And the fact that it is so easy to meet these requirements, I think that, you know, just having that so that people can say, okay, we have to meet these requirements. We have to hire, you know, we have to look at more diverse people when we're hiring to work on films or even in, you know, like our production offices at the studio. Like, I I think that that is enough to get people just at least thinking about diversity in Hollywood in a way that they maybe weren't before. And hopefully in the future, they will revise these guidelines to make for a higher standard of inclusion. Um, That's like, I feel that this is a good starting point. Mm -hmm. I agree, Dan. Yeah. These are baby steps, but they are baby steps in the right direction. Yes, exactly. All right. Let's now discuss our second trailer for this week here. The new film from Ben Wheatley, an adaptation of Rebecca, not a remake of the Alfred Hitchcock Rebecca. I want to preface by saying that, but an adaptation of the 1938 novel by Daphne du Maurier. And this movie is starring Lily James, Army Hammer, Kristen Scott Thomas. It's going to be released on Netflix on October 21st. Let's take a look. Give some thoughts. The terrace is for guests only. Monsieur, the young lady will be joining me. What did you do? I'm a lady's companion. Maxim de Winter. His wife died last year in his entire need of company. I'm Monsieur de Winter. What are you doing? Oh, you'll see. This week, I'd like to never forget it. Come to Mandalay. I'm asking you to marry me, you little fool. Winter. May I present Mrs. Danvers? Welcome to Mandalay. Never seen a house like this. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you'd been a lady's maid. This is all very new to me. Oh, I'm sure you won't disappoint him, madam, if that's your concern. We did a lot of entertaining when the late Mrs. De Winter was alive. You could talk to me about her. I have no secrets from you. All marriages have their secrets. Has Max ever talked to you about the accident? I don't know what you're talking about. How am I supposed to know anything if you don't tell me? She's still here. Can you feel her? I'm tossing and turning all night. 
country. She was the love of his life. I wonder what she's thinking about you. Taking her husband, using her name. He doesn't love you. I said I want the truth. You didn't know her. You know what he did. He can't go on living in that big old house with a ghost! Don't believe in ghosts. I have never been so attracted to a movie's production design before in my <laughs> life. Oh, oh come on. Same. That's a reach. <laughs> I but no, like that the the all white of Rebecca's quarters, like I, I was literally sitting here going, Oh my god. I definitely think that this is a production design, costume design nominee just based on the trailer alone. You can tell from looking at the aesthetic of this. Yeah. Uh, Okay, I've got I've got two two problems, one unfounded one. Actually, they're both kind of unfounded. But (laughs) let me just say for the record, I don't like that they marketed this like a Fifty Shades movie or something like The Great Gatsby Uh, It seems like that kind of a vibe that they're going for with this trailer is not going to be what the final product is. If you guys know Ben Wheatley's previous work, unless if Ben Wheatley is truly dipping his toe into more mainstream commercial conventional like storytelling, I I, which I, I doubt. But, you know, stranger things have happened, obviously, within this industry. And then the second thing is well actually no that was the second thing i was able to convey both things in the same statement so there you go it's essentially ben wheatley's style and also to the way they decided to market this trailer which i understand because they wanted to appeal to a mainstream audience which is what the netflix audience actually is but i would be shocked if that was the actual tone and vibe of this finished product <laughs> look this looks like the trashy gothic romance film of my dreams Um, I'm a huge fan of the book, Rebecca. I love the previous film adaptation. I see so much good in this trailer. Kristen Scott Thomas, Lily James, production design, costume design. I'm so intrigued by the short bits that we get of what looks to be the masquerade scene, which is a really interesting uh, bit in the book. And I'm really curious to see because that is one of the few things that I think, okay, Ben Wheatley's like style could actually work really well there. That said, I, I do want to go on record saying this has convinced me of what I had previously thought, which is that Army Hammer is the wrong person for this role. Mm-hmm. Um, he is not Maxim De Winter. I'm sorry. I was trying to keep an open mind, but it's clear that like the direction that they've gone in with it is not that. So do I think it's going to be a great adaptation of the book? Probably not. Do I think it's going to be a film that I very much enjoy? Yes. Uh, so, you know, I think that I, I, I've so, a lot of the discourse that I saw was around how, like, okay, yes, Army Hammer is everything that we feared that he would be in this movie, and it's true. <laughs> I saw a lot of discourse, you know, about I, I did see that, but I also saw just a lot of people saying, oh, Alfred Hitchcock, Rebecca, this is not. And it's like, no, yeah, no, of course it's not. It's not trying to be, which is why I prefaced by saying it's an adaptation of the book. It's not an adaptation. It's not a remake of that film. To be fair, the book, it's a little, it's a bit more like tawdry than the uh, Alfred Hitchcock movie. Like the Alfred Hitchcock movie is a bit more somber than the book itself, which does kind of 
lend its way into like a bit of a like trashy gothic romance. Um, as Dan, Dan and I discussed this a lot in the next best adaptation podcast talking <laughs> yeah. about Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> the, and I was happy to see that in the trailer, they do seem to highlight a lot more of the uh, class commentary than the Hitchcock film did, uh, which is mm. a, a huge part of the novel. Like, I, and I think I said this on the next best adaptation podcast that like, I, I would love to see the Julian fellows version of Rebecca because yep. there is so it is literally all about a poor girl taking on the position of an English manor, you know, lady of the manor. And that is where a lot of the tension comes from just as much as it comes from the trying to, you know, like from the dead Per, seemingly perfect ex-wife yeah. um, and the the one thing we haven't talked about yet which I'm kind of surprised about because it is really the best thing about the trailer as much as I love the production design is that Kristen Scott Thomas looks <laughs> perfect as Mrs. Danford yeah she's definitely the casting choice that intrigues me the most and I do feel that if there is any above the line mentions for this it would be her for supporting actress yeah. but but to be trivial, which is my specialty, um, Army Hammer's light pumpkin suit. I can't oh. even. That aside, I thought the costumes looked really good. <laughs> Otherwise, they look great. But like, what the hell did they do to Army Hammer? I know. Like someone, someone on that costuming team is as upset as I am that he got cast in this role. <laughs> somehow made him look even more bland. Um, I, you know, I'm going to be honest. I really wasn't that big of a fan of this trailer. Um, and I, I think that it, for me, there's a combination of having obviously reverence for the Hitchcock film, which I understand this isn't a, a direct remake of that, but still it's hard to erase that version completely. And Ben Wheatley is a filmmaker that I... I respect his game. I respect what he goes for in movies, but I've yet to really see one of his films that's really wowed me and won me over. And him directing this material just seems so strange to me. And that's kind of intriguing, but at the same time, I'm also like, I have no idea what to expect from it, but not really in a good way. So, and Army Hammer, I'm very like apathetic towards. I don't hate him, but I don't really love his work either. So I don't know. Like, it's a movie that I'm somewhat interested in, but there are many, many other things that I would take before watching this movie. And I don't think that this trailer necessarily convinced me otherwise. Yeah, it didn't convince me that it's going to be anything outside of costumes, production design and maybe Chris and Scott Thomas. Uh, it's the it, it like and like I said, I'm hoping that it's just the marketing, which once again, I can understand why it takes the vibe and the tone that it does. I'm hoping that it's more of the Ben Wheatley version of Rebecca and not Ben Wheatley under studio constraints making a commercial version of Rebecca for a wide audience. That's what I'm afraid of. Yeah. Hey, everyone. I'm Aaron. And I'm Patrick. And together we host the Feelin' Film Podcast, a show that focuses more on the emotional takeaway from a movie experience rather than its technical merit. Yes, sir. Talking about what we love about film and focusing less on the critical side of things makes for a very entertaining and enjoyable discussion. New episodes drop every Monday morning. 
and you can catch them on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and many other podcasting networks. You can also find out more about the show at feelinfilm.com. In the meantime, as we say on the show, stay positive and keep feeling film. All right, time to finish this up with some fan questions here. Uh, we have a lot of uh, interesting topics to discuss. Let's get the uh, let's get the big one out of the way first. Juan Carlos Oyano. Have any of you seen Cuties? If yes, what did you think of it? And what do you make of the controversy surrounding it? So I, I admit I have not seen this movie yet, but I'm also going to say that I think almost everybody who has weighed into this controversy has also not seen the movie yet. <laughs> and I think that is a big problem. I think we have a lot of people making yep. judgment calls on a movie that they have not seen and do not know the greater context. And from the conversations I've heard from people who have seen it, it is nothing like what people are saying it is from that initial uh, impression. And I think it's very important that people, before they decide to make a commentary about something, to actually watch the thing that they want to discuss. I 100% agree with you. I'd like to retweet that. (laughs) I I have not seen it yet either. I am going to watch it. I don't know when, but I am going to watch it at some point. And I, too, think that this is a bigger, broader discussion and actually leans more so into our political conversation, uh, which, quite frankly, I really don't want to get into necessarily. Just I want to just reiterate everything that Josh said. I think he said it the best. And I think that uh, that is the best way to view it. It's one of those movies that, like, is tailor made to have these kinds of conversations before anyone sees it. And then when people actually see it, they go, oh, what what were what were we talking about again? Mm-hmm. You know, like it. There there have been so many movies that uh, a trailer or a still image from the movie drops along with a synopsis, and people think they know everything about it or feel the need to criticize because of this. Just the premise of the movie, but a premise isn't a movie, and there are so many things that can be done with tone that can turn it into something different than what people think. And I think right now these, you know, it's one of those things. It's like a Rorschach test, yeah. right? Okay. It, your reaction to it, especially without having seen it, but probably after you've seen it too, says more about you than it does about the movie itself. And I do not like policing movies in this way before you've seen them Mm -hmm. and and i just feel like it's it says so much about our our culture that like when something becomes a flashpoint like this people who people feel the need to wade in on it and opinionate about it because that's what our culture is right now and the fact that they're doing it without having seen it is so typical and so and the thing that disgusts me the most is seeing the harassment that has been thrown at some of our uh, fellow film critic friends out there who have reviewed the movie, even back when it premiered at Sundance, positively. There are people that are making accounts on Twitter specifically just to attack uh, people about this movie. And it's just something that is ugly it is horrible and i hope those people rot in hell because they have nothing better to do than just that i wouldn't go that far but maybe i will um, <laughs> it, 
It's disgusting. Uh, from eggs underscore acid. Do you think Frances McDormand can win a third Oscar for Nomadland after winning her second just three years ago? No, no, no. Especially having seen it. No, it, she's probably good for a nomination, but it is way too quiet of a performance to get a win. Yeah. Titus Banks asks, in addition to being uh, picture director contenders, the last three Golden Lion winners all received double digit Oscar nominations. Uh, I, I guess he's referring to uh, The Shape of Water, Roma and Joker. Haven't actually seen Nomadland. Do you think it's even remotely possible it'll receive close to that many nominations? Dan, let, let, let's run through the prospects really quick, really quickly here. OK, so on its best day, on its absolute best day. It is, which let's be clear, will not happen. It's picture, director, leading actress, cinematography, adapted screenplay, and score if that's eligible. I think realistically, we're looking at picture, actress, cinematography. I am really sorry to say that Chloe Zhao is probably going to left out of best director, but. Best director is already a crowded field. And while this movie will definitely have fans, it's not the kind of movie that the Academy as a whole will embrace. I think that she stands more of a chance in adapted screenplay, which is a much weaker field. I I want to equate it to something maybe to help put it in perspective a bit like think if Noah Baumbach couldn't get director last year for Marriage Story, I don't know how Chloe Zhao gets director for this. And they're two very different types of movies. But, you know, when you have big muscle movies like Dune or like um, Mank and, you know, granted, no one's seen Mank yet, but regardless of which, you know, it's really, really hard for a small independent movie like this to creep in there. The way that I can see it happening is in a similar way that Manchester by the Sea got Kenneth Lonergan in there because it was a top three best picture contender or the way Boyhood got Richard Linklater in there because it was a top two best picture you know, contender. So if Nomadland stays in that position where it is in the top two or three contending for a best picture win, I could see Chloe Zhao getting in there. But to be very, very clear, it's the kind of movie and typically the kind of direction that that branch of the Academy traditionally does not nominate. She has an uphill battle. Uh, Scott Kernan. What do you consider to be the current frontrunners in screenplay? I'm starting to get this feeling that Soul is going to be a contender in original, not only for a nom, but potentially to win. And I'm also starting to feel that Nomadland is going to be the frontrunner in Adapted. What say you? Those are what I currently have. Yeah, <laughs> I think they both have kind of uphill battles in different ways, but it certainly could happen. Yeah. Original is insane with Mank, Trial of Chicago 7, and Soul all in there. Adapted definitely looks good right now for Nomadland, but after having just seen it, I would be surprised if it won only because it's not it's not the dialogue heavy kind of a screen like kind of a screenplay. I I, I wonder. No, but I. Yeah, but I do think that oftentimes the screenplay wins, especially if they are from the director, become the consolation prize. And 
if there is enough respect for Chloe Zhao in in the race, like maybe No Man Land isn't winning a ton of stuff, but if people have a lot of admiration for what she did with that movie and want to give her something, screenplay is the perfect place to do it. Sure. I do yeah, think, no, I totally get it. Like, not having seen it, I do think that Hillbilly Elegy is still probably somewhere in the running um, for Best Adapted, um, particularly because it is one of those books that they're going to have to do some significant work to adapt it to the screen. My, my, my eye right now is on Marini's Black Bottom and Adapted at the moment. Yeah, me too. I... It's, again, it's August Wilson sort of thing, and that has more of the literary sheen to it that people tend to go for in adapted screenplay. Uh, same for One Night in Miami, although that probably has less of a chance than Marini's Black Bottom, having not seen Marini's Black Bottom. But, you know, Nomadland, it, it's a good screenplay, but it's not the kind, again, like people tend to go for more dialogue heavy stuff and this it it has the feel it's so naturalistic that it feels like nothing was scripted and and ma rainey really has a lot of i don't want to say theatrical but i'll say theatrical um dialogue to it which makes the screenplay pop out more and yeah uh, you're gonna have a what I expect to be a magnificent performance from Viola Davis. It's going to make Academy members watch it. And it's going to, it's, it's going to be a big player, I think. Yeah. The only thing that I worry about sometimes with adaptation of plays though, is I think that there is still a stigma of people looking at that and thinking, well, you basically just took all the dialogue from the show and you added screen direction. And what did you really adapt? And I think that that is something that that movie is going to run into. Mm-hmm. Watch it be Dune. That just wins adapted. It, it is shocks you. I, I'm, I'm joking. I'm it joking. <laughs> uh, next question. James 54292959 asks, what do you think will win the TIFF People's Choice Award this year? Remember that the Golden Lion winner has also never won the TIFF Award. <laughs> um, the, the, festival, the festival is not over yet. <laughs> so there are some things still to come that stand a good chance. Um, I'm looking mostly at uh, things that will premiere Monday, uh, Good Joe Bell and Concrete Cowboy when it comes to that. But of what I've seen so far, I think that Nomadland stands a decent chance, actually. But I'm thinking that especially the Canadian audience, which is most of the people who are there this year who will be voting, I think that Beans stands an outside chance Mm -hmm. because it's a very Canadian film. It's very accessible and very well done. And it it gets you emotional in the way that uh, an audience award winner generally tends to do. It reminds me a lot of Jojo Rabbit without the satirical elements of that movie. I also feel like I wouldn't be shocked if Ammonite did win, because it would certainly kind of feed into this narrative of a movie that we thought, oh, it's kind of cool, and maybe people aren't really into it, and then suddenly, surprise, it turns out that there's an audience that actually really is passionate about it, and we have to turn our attention back to it again. No. 
I, I hate to well, say it. I really do, but no. Well, I mean, that audience award can throw some curveballs sometimes, so you never know. I have a feeling this will be a curveball year, unless if Nomadland does become the first Golden Lion winner to win the audience award. I, I do think that there might be a shock uh, for the audience award this year that people don't see coming. Like it could be, like it could be Wolf Walkers. In all honesty, I genuinely would would not be so surprised because that is is fantastic. <laughs> Richard Houlihan asks if the Oscars had their own best ensemble award. Do you think the winner would match the SAG ensemble winner? And if so, uh, he gives three examples. 2010, the King's Speech. Do you think the Oscar would have also have gone to the King's Speech for ensemble? Probably. Or would it have gone to a different movie? I think in most cases, it probably would have gone to the SAG winner. I don't see mm. any reason to think it would be different. I mean, yeah. maybe the fighter would have won. That's the only thing I think would have been in competition. I, I actually kind of agree with you, Josh. I, I, I do think about it in terms of on Oscar night, would it just be another Oscar uh, to award the King's Speech or would it be an award to recognize another movie elsewhere? And The Fighter, I think, is the best alternative to it. I mean, yeah. it won two Oscars for acting, so... It would be really cool if it went to the social network, but I, I just believe that nobody was into that young cast that year. Yeah, that wasn't going to happen. Um, not, not the way they are into you know those stars today, for example. Uh, 2016, Hidden Figures... I think it would have gone to Moonlight. Yeah. yeah. I mean, most people thought it was going to go to Moonlight at SAG. That in figures one was pretty surprising. Yeah. Uh, and then the other example given 2018 Black Panther. It's actually a good, good one to consider. Yeah. That is an interesting That's one a good to consider. Answer. I feel like. I feel like the Academy might have gone for the favorite instead. But at the same time, Black Panther did win a good number of Oscars that night. So maybe I'm overthinking things. Black Panther, there's a depth there in terms of the number of really good performances. In it. I, th I think they would have handed an Oscar to Black Panther for ensemble. Yeah, yeah. I think it would have happened. All right, Sam James Peck, this or that. We're going to rattle these off really quick. No hesitation. You guys ready? Once Upon a Time in the West or America? America. 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 Um, yeah, America. Yeah. Up or Wally? -E? Wally. -E? Wally. -E. Up. Up, but just barely. Network or broadcast news? Network. Oh, network. 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 Yeah, network. Not even close. <laughs> Dead Poet Society or Goodwill Hunting? Goodwill Hunting. Mm. Ooh, Dead Poet. Dead Poet Society. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna say Dead Poet Society. <laughs> Not crazy about either, but I'll say uh, Dead Poet Society. Annie Hall or When Harry Met Sally? Oh, When, when Harry, Harry Met, Met Sally. Sally. When Harry oh, Met Sally. Annie Hall. I'm gonna say Annie Hall. Ants or A Bug's Life? God. <laughs> I I am going with ants. I love ants. Uh. I'm going to say a bug's life, but not by that much. Yeah, same. A bug's life, even even despite Kevin Spacey. Yeah. Kevin Spacey or Woody Allen? <laughs> I, oh, yeah, right. I know. <laughs> yeah, lesser of two evils, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> All about Eve or Sunset Boulevard? God. Oh God! Oh, don't do this to me. I'm, oh, I'm going to go All About Eve. I'm saying Sunset Boulevard. That's really close, though. Yeah. Oh. 
I'm going to get my gay card revoked, but I'd say All About Eve. I The thing is, is that I haven't seen All About Eve as recently as I have Sunset Boulevard. So I'm t- I I'm going Sunset Boulevard, but the next time I watch All About Eve, that will very likely change. Yeah, these are two excellent movies. I am gonna say Sunset Boulevard just because I do rewatch that one more than I do All About Eve, but love both of them. Okay, last thing, and then we can go. Ethan May, replace the weakest nominee in your opinion from the categories below. Choose who should be there instead. The year is nineteen ninety. Two. Okay. The categories. Supporting actor, 1992. Replace the weakest with someone else. David Paymer for Mr. Saturday Night. Al Pacino and Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Jack Nicholson in A Few Good Men. Jay Davidson in The Crying Game. And Gene Hackman for Unforgiven. Uh, I think I can get rid of Al Pacino because he's already got another nomination in this year. I think I would get rid of David Paymer because I have not seen Mr. Saturday Night. I mean, I haven't either, but (laughs) I also don't want to take that away from him because he's such a great character actor and that's a nice recognition for him. And, you know, same. I I don't like like I said, I haven't seen it, but I don't want to take away that nomination from him. He's he's actually good in it. He's really good in it. But and I agree, you know, it's his one thing that you can look towards and the the performance i would replace uh is i would do steve buscemi for reservoir dogs i was literally about to be oh it's easily tom hanks in a league of their own but then i saw reservoir dogs and i'm like oh yeah but buscemi, tom hanks is good. yeah he, yeah uh, do we consider Jack Lemon leader supporting in Glengarry Glen Ross? Ooh, a uh, lead. Yeah, I'm gonna go. With, yeah. I'm gonna go with lead on that one. Yeah. Okay. I've seen both people mention that, so but I think I would say Tom Hanks. Yeah, I would say Tom Hanks. It's an iconic performance. Yeah. Uh, alrighty. Next category: actress. Susan Sarandon for Lorenzo's Oil, Michelle Pfeiffer, Love Field, Mary McDonald for Passion Fish, Catherine Deneuve for Indochine, Emma Thompson for Howard's End. So as much as I love her and don't want to take her away, her only Oscar nomination, what the fuck? Um, Catherine Deneuve is the weakest in this field, and that pains me to say, but she is. I already know what I'm replacing her with because I'm taking her out too. I'm putting until the Swinton for Orlando. There you go. I like yeah, that. So mm-hmm. You know, Matt, um, I, I have to unfortunately break the news to you that that's actually a 1993 movie. Uh, as far oh, as for for, for consideration for Oscar? Yeah. Oh, yeah. shoot. You're right. Oh, no. Because oh, she would it. normally be my pick too, but I did look at that and because. Orlando got nominated in categories in 1993. Oh, so you're right. Oh, yeah. I confused the years. I hate it when that happens. All right. Yeah, I know because yeah. normally that would have been my pick too. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm torn between. No. Uh. Fuck it. She's <laughs> kind of borderline supporting. Maybe I haven't seen this movie in a long time, but I would really put um, Sharon Stone in Basic Instinct in her place oh that's a lead yeah again like i haven't seen it in a long time and i feel like it maybe is one of those like sort of 
like borderline lead supporting because like her presence looms so large. I, I can't really remember, but yeah, I think she's fan- she's dynamite in that movie. I would go with in terms of somebody that I would replace with one of my favorite Meryl Streep performances in Death Becomes Her. Yeah, that's a great choice too. That's phenomenal. <laughs> I'm leaning towards the basic instinct choice as well. I'm just trying to jog my memory to make sure I'm not like leaving something else off. The other big one that year that would have been fun as a nominee in this category mm-hmm. is Whoopi Goldberg and Sister Act. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's good. That's legit. You know what? I'm going to go with that just for the sheer fun of it. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. It's a great performance. Yeah. Director 1992. We have Martin Bress for Scent of a Woman, Robert Altman for The Player, James Ivory, Howard's End, Neil Jordan, The Crying Game, and Clint Eastwood, Unforgiven. Goodbye, Martin Brest. Yes. Yep. So long. 100%. Yep. See yep. you later. As far as what I'm putting in, though, whew. Oh, I have an easy one. I, I, I have one, but I'm going to... Uh, you know, I, I got two. Uh, I got two. Uh, but the easy one is Spike Lee from Malcolm X for me. Yep, that was what I was going to say. The yeah. cool one that I would just be like, you know what? You'd love to see it. John Woo for Hard Boiled. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, so I, I had a few that I was going back and forth on uh, for this one because there are there are lots of movies that I love the direction of this year. Like shout out to Boz Lerman for strictly ballroom, Mm -hmm. his best movie Um, in my opinion. Yeah. And I, there's part of me that would love to give it to Penny Marshall for a league of their own, Mm -hmm. but the, I have to give it to, cause I love this movie so much. Um, Alfonso Arau for like water for chocolate. Oh, wow. Oh, that was kind of left field. I I love that movie, and I think the direction of it is really strong. I also really like Michael Mann's work on Last of the Mohicans. Okay, I was like, do I say it? Oh, yeah. (laughs) God, I forgot that he didn't get nominated. That feels like the movie that actually maybe would have been the other director nominee that year if you were taking one of these out. Yeah, it, I love that movie so much. I rewatched it not too long ago, and it still holds up pretty well. And I have to also say, Daniel Day-Lewis in that movie. Oh, oh, yep. oh my yeah. God. I can't get it. Right. Like on a weekly basis. Yeah. <laughs> the cinematography in that movie, too. The score. Oh, stunning. Oh, yeah. Should have won cinematography. Yeah. Oh. It's really, really good. Best picture. 1992, Scent of a Woman, Howard's End, A Few Good Men, The Crying Game, Unforgiven, Goodbye, Scent of a Woman, again. Goodbye, Scent of a Woman, Hello, Last of the Mohicans. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. Um, because I did just recently rewatch it, um, I I am obligated to put Malcolm X in here because it really is a towering movie that should have been uh, contending for so much more. Uh, but if I had to like also substitute others in here, I mean, like I also really love the player. I really love Aladdin. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Which we didn't mention Robin Williams for supporting actor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That would be great. I got it. I got to say, I would really give it to a league of their own. That movie is 
like it's so classically well made and at the same time that it's a a good movie it is a big hit big crowd pleaser and it comes by all of that honestly and genuinely it never reaches for the big emotional moments it just gets at them yeah I, it is I, such a great movie. Yeah, yeah. I, I would totally get the give the nomination to the player. It's one of the best films about Hollywood I've ever seen. Yeah, I, I do think that either A League of Their Own or Aladdin, I would be fine with either of those. Those are two of my favorite movies. Aladdin is actually my favorite Disney film, so both Ooh. of them I think are great accomplishments. All right, that's it. That'll do it for episode 211 here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Nicole, tell everyone where they can find you on the internet. You can find me at Nicole Ackman 16. Josh Parham. I'm on Twitter at JR Parham. Dan Bear. You can find me on Twitter at Dancing Dan on Film. And Tom O'Brien. And I am on Twitter at Thomas E. O'Brien. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player, FM, Acast, CastBox, and also on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening. As always, we shall see you all next time.